This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the last Bunker panel show of the year. I'm Andrew Harrison. Thanks for joining us as we steal ourselves to look back on a groundhog year of unlocking and relocking, exciting new COVID variants, cheese, wine, and general mismanagement of everything. Regulars Ahir Shah, Marie LeConte, and Gavin Esler will be joining me to talk about the standout moments of the year, to find some little rays of hope in the gloom, and to highlight what to look out for in 2022. Plus, in more immediate matters, well, they did promise us that Brexit would get rid of all the unelected bureaucrats. Brexit Minister Lord Frost quits over the government's direction of travel, and yet more pictures emerge of Downing Street's busy social schedule, while the rest of us are trapped indoors watching Tiger King. How much wronger can it go for Boris Johnson? Deck the halls with unusable PPE equipment. It's the Bunker Review of 2021. Hello. At the time of recording, Christmas had not yet been cancelled. So greetings if you're listening to this in a jam on the M6, in a crowded train on the way back to your folks' place, or if you're just hiding under the stairs having faked a positive COVID test to get out of all of it. This is our last panel show of the year. We'll be back in the first week of January, so let's hope nothing happens between then and now. It is, however, of course, a good time to catch up on any bunker dailies you might have missed. In the meantime, let's say hello to the panel. Gavin Esler is a distinguished writer, broadcaster, former BBC journalist, Chancellor of the University of Kent, and author of the book Every Child Wants for Their Stocking, How Britain Ends. Hello, Gavin. Hello, hello. So we're going to be talking about Lord Frost, cheese and wine and conservative fratricide in detail later, but there's Omicron to deal with first. I mean, literally just before we started recording, we got the non-announcement from the non-Prime Minister. They're still tossing around these three alternatives, urging us to limit social mixing, mandating curbs on mixing and bringing back social distancing, or a full lockdown. Is there any forward movement here out of the government, do you think? Well, I mean, this is a Prime Minister who said we're doing all we could We did all we could, and he missed the first five COBRA meetings. So it's hardly surprising. He doesn't know at all what to do. And there are really two choices. There is the libertarian, or uh, as the rest of us call it, selfish way of doing it, which is to say you're all on your own, uh, take care out there, have a nice day. Or there's the um, things that governments do, which is to say we're in charge of public health policy. This is a public health issue, so we're going to do something. And Boris Johnson doesn't know which of those two uh, he's going to he's going to do because he's got his right wing uh, weirdos basically saying to him, "Don't do anything. It's all you've got to keep the economy open." Uh, not kind of recognizing that if we've got hospitals that don't function and lots of people sick, the economy won't work. So it's it's no surprise he doesn't know what to do. He's got two versions of reality. Well, as you said, he missed the first five Cobra meetings. He's missed the last three as well. He's only today run an emergency um, cabinet. Leaving it to the very last minute seems to be something that you might learn not to do, but it happens time and time again, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And in the past couple of months, I've been to Northern Ireland and to Scotland, and they're doing it differently there. And I'm not saying it's hugely 
better because it's a very difficult situation. But you go into any place in Northern Ireland and they expect you to wear a mask. They expect you to, you know, you produce your QR code or your, your, your you know, your kind of vaccine passport thing. Otherwise, you don't get in. And that was true of checking into the hotel in Belfast. So why on earth we have three or four different systems in this country and the biggest part of our country, England, has got Boris Johnson in charge and he doesn't know what he's doing? More on that a little bit later, I suspect. Also with us is parliamentary lobby reporter, Westminster Gossip Hound, author of Honourable Misfits, A Brief History of Britain's Weirdest, Unluckiest and Most Outrageous MPs, Ideal Gift, still available in the Christmas Post, and Unashamed French Person, Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> so how exactly how rest of his parliament after last week's kind of uh, you know rebellions against the uh, the COVID measures, the North Shropshire by-election, all of these things that are um, crowding in on Boris Johnson, how rest of are they? And are we really close to this leadership challenge that people keep talking about? Uh, I'm not sure we are. I mean, these are very much two different questions, I think. So mm. Conservative parliamentary benches are definitely not happy, I think, with the leadership at the moment. But at the same time, I'm not entirely sure that means that there's a leadership contest kind of happening, you know, on the 2nd of January either. So people are very frustrated. But again, but but for different reasons, I think you've got quite a lot of the Conservative benches who are angry, as we'll talk about later in the show, uh, because Boris, you know, is kind of listening to the experts too much. Uh, but then obviously, on the other side, you do have quite a big slice that, you know, basically wants, if not an entire lockdown right now, at least, you know, some kind of, you know, stronger measures at the moment. So so I think it is still a party that essentially is um, quite split on that. So again, I would say for the time being, you know, Boris Johnson is not, probably not having an especially pleasant time, but is definitely not sort of like uh, unsafe right this second. One of the highlights of a quite a busy weekend was uh, noted free speech champion Steve Baker booting Nadine Dorries out of the clean global Brexit WhatsApp group, or Nadine Doris, as she was uh, named in the screen grabs. Um, what should we draw from this, apart from the fact that they're fighting like rats in a sack? I mean, not much. I think that that, that is just basically, I, I would say that says more about Nadine Dorries than anyone else, because it's just, I think, a group of rebels who fundamentally like being rebels a bit like mm. kind of you know teenagers like cool teenagers at the back of the bus who just really like the fact that at the back of the bus um mm. they want to be complaining they do not want to be the ones kind of you know in power but also with you know all that intel so you know the kind of responsibilities of it so i think that nadine dory's days were probably counted from the moment she joined the cabinet instead so yeah I'm, I'm not sure it's you know it's something we can get a lot of apart from quite a lot of amusement to be honest i think you know steve baker boosting his own bitmoji putting the thumbs up as he kicked down and dory from the group was just very funny i think it was basically just very funny and andrew bridgen saying about time too it's a lot a lot doing a lot of work those words aren't they there's an entire backstory in those few words <laughs> completing the panel it's stand-up comedian and sit-down podcaster star of mock the week have i got news for you in the mash report his tour continues 2022 tickets available now it's i here shah hello i here hello well hopefully the tour continues uh towards the end of uh january but uh looking at the parlor state of theaters at the moment uh one worries well i'm, I'm just crossing my fingers for you um yeah. So last week it was Politicians versus Scientists Week, as Marie just alluded to, with uh, the astonishing Joy Morrissey MP subtweeting Chris Whitty with the words, perhaps the unelected COVID public health spokesman should defer to what our, our elected MPs and the PM have decided. This is not a public health socialist state. Should, should we decide scientific conclusions by voting out here? Shall we have a referendum on gravity? <laughs> Well, what I kind of liked about uh, the Morrissey tweet, uh, which no, the Joy Morrissey <laughs> tweet, we'll use her full often. name because, yes. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Joy Morrissey uh, MP tweet, not to be confused with the musician. Um, 
So you don't really think about it that often, but we sort of do live in a public health socialist state. Uh, sort of that, that's sort of the nature of what the NHS is, right? Um, <laughs> so that was that was odd in and of itself. Uh, and also, it just sort of speaks to me about this. Chris Whitty was asked a very direct question and gave pretty much as balanced an answer as someone in his position could, I thought, because, you know, he can't be explicitly political. And so he was just saying, look... As far as I'm concerned, it's a question of priorities. And do you want to prioritize going for that Christmas drinks or do you want to prioritize and, and potentially risk contracting Omicron or whatever? Or do you want to prioritize spending Christmas with your family? And it's a shitty thing to have to do the toss up for. But a lot of people are in that position. And it seemed entirely fair enough. Therefore, it, it seemed like the, the criticisms of that position uh, really come from a sort of group of largely conservative politicians who would just rather be like, yeah, it's done now. This isn't this isn't a thing anymore. It's fine. Uh, and unfortunately, microorganisms don't operate under those uh, bases. They're very undemocratic microorganisms. <laughs> they don't listen to the will of the people. <laughs> Before we review the year, let's review the mess that the government is in this week. Uh, this podcast is classed as a meeting, so naturally we've got a lot of cheese and wine and no notes or flip charts, and we're doing it in the back garden, and it's quite cold. Uh, this week, Lord Frost melts away. Liz Truss takes over as Brexit negotiator. Yet more party picks. Marie, let's start with Lord Frost leaving. Uh, as you say, he sounds like one of the bad X-Men. Um, how, how serious is this for, for Boris Johnson? How, how close were they as political actors? Um, so actually, I will start by saying I am actually drinking wine uh, as Good. we speak because I thought, you know, this is the last episode of the year um, mm. and we've had a very terrible month, so I may as well just start drinking at 5pm. Good. Um, oh, nice. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I'm not convinced it's a massive deal, really, because, you know, I mean, A, he's in the Lords anyway, so, you know, he doesn't really have, like, the sort of power base I think, you know, a member of parliament would have, the kind of, you know, the people they'd be close to, um, etc. But but it's also, you know, he, he was not especially high profile, so I think he was quite liked by the Tory members, but as we all know, there are only about 17 at most Conservative Party members, so <laughs> even if they're just a bit peeved, that's not the end of the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's a huge deal for Boris Johnson especially, you know, I, I think it will be a huge deal by the kind of, you know, Brexit sort of like fanatics who want to hit up Boris anyway. But apart from that, that's not something that, if I were him, that would worry me specifically. It, the surprise was that he kind of quit over something that was entirely unrelated to Brexit, over what he's referring to as the government's direction of travel and COVID measures and tax. I mean, does he fancy himself as a frontline politician? I don't think he does. I mean, you know, who who is the last person who managed to become a frontline politician from the laws? So that was what arguably, I guess, Peter Mandelson, and you know, famously, that went tremendously well for him. Uh, and again, you know, and I, I'll be the first one to happily admit I've not really been following the kind of details of the kind of Brexit stuff post, or you know, thirty first of January. But my sense is that basically, Frost was eventually told he probably had to negotiate and actually, you know, make some compromises over some stuff uh, with the EU, which he was not willing to do. So I think arguably that's probably the reason why he decided to. To leave um so again I'm, I'm not sure that's a massive loss i mean i'm not i'm not convinced that actually the government made the right choice in giving list trust his job i think that may be something you know if she plays her cards right she will certainly i think assert herself as the kind of front runner to replace boris but apart from that again i'm kind of struggling to see this as a, as a huge deal to be honest 
Gavin, what do you think? I mean, the, the frost flounce was preceded by Britain climbing down on the ECG, having jurisdiction over the Northern Ireland Protocol. You've just been in Belfast, as you were saying. Frost had been making multiple threats to use Article 16 that all came to nothing. Is he just distancing himself from the inevitable failure of, of these things and the fact that customs checks are going to come in in January, full customs checks, and Brexit is going to be even more painful? Yes, he is distancing himself from inevitable failure, and for a couple of reasons. One is uh, Brexit is squaring the circle. You know, Lord Frost is done. Brexit is not done, and it won't be done, and he can't do it. Uh, and I don't think his successor can either, or at least do it so that it's finished. And also, you know... <laughs> I wrote about this in the book, actually, quite a bit about Lord Frost. He, he, he's not that smart, actually. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's Oxford, um, history and French. And yet he did a speech in Brussels saying, well, the thing about Britain, you see, is we've never quite fitted in with you Europeans because, because you have sort of rules and we've just muddled through for hundreds of years. This is utter crap. Yeah. <laughs> He obviously thought that speech in Brussels was a heavyweight contribution to Britain not being in Europe, but it was really badly thought through, as has been everything that has been done ever since. So the problem is, you know, I think a systemic failure that uh, it's not that he has just failed, but who would have succeeded? David Davis, who also quit. Will it be Liz Truss? Will she somehow magically succeed? As somebody who was in favour of remaining and is now sort of an arch lever, it's it's very, very difficult to see anybody succeeding because they never, ever thought through exactly what they wanted out of Brexit. Are people like us just thinking about this from completely the wrong angle, though? Because we tend to look at it and go, well, you know, they set themselves goals and failed to achieve them. And here are the objective facts. And this is what an objective reason-based policy would do. None of these things happen because they're thinking about it in a completely different context. It's all about position within that very strange and rarefied conservative hierarchy, conditioned in a lot of ways by the kind of yeah. schools that a lot of these people went to. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. So you could imagine a situation in which Liz Trust, now in charge of the, the, the job, takes it on, but quits in six months or nine months or whenever she thinks she can replace Boris Johnson and says because Boris isn't being tough enough. I mean, it's all it, for, for Boris Johnson, it was all about positioning within the Conservative Party. I mean, part of the, the systemic failure of the British system is how do you become Boris Johnson in, in Downing Street? And you become it by actually charming just over 100,000 Conservative Party members and some MPs who, who push you through. And the Conservative Party members, as you know, tend to be much older than the average electorate. Uh, the oh. Bow Group says the average age is 72, which seems a bit high, but they're certainly older and different from the rest of humanity in Britain. And it, he, he charmed them. And that's the electorate that mattered most to him. That, and as he said, my boss is at the Daily Telegraph. So Liz Truss may very well do the same thing. And she, that's why she's been talked of as a, as a contender. But it's got nothing to do with us or making a success out of Brexit. I very clearly remember when Johnson won the leadership and therefore the the, uh, the prime ministership before, you know, after May had fallen. I think it was Channel 4 went to talk to a local conservative association. And the guy said... There's nothing wrong with somebody going straight from uh, an election inside the Conservative Party to the Prime Ministership. When you have a local cricket club, the members elect the leader of the cricket club, and it's none of anybody else's business. And at no point did anybody say, yes, but then the guy that runs the cricket club doesn't go on to become the mayor of the town with absolute power in the town. 
It's just yeah. sailed through as if there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, as a cricket fan, that might work, though. I, th- I think. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you, I mean, and you're a cricket fan and I'm not, but even I know that English cricket's not been doing great this week. <laughs> this is why we put an Indian in charge. <laughs> I'm not sure Yorkshire, that what's been happening in the cricket club. Suggest that would be a particularly good idea here. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> um, just, I mean, g- giving Liz Trust the benefit of whatever doubt we can give her, how do you think she's going to approach this job, Gavin? Apart from going, that is a disgrace, and shouting about pork markets and cheese. <laughs> In any interview that you've ever seen her even mildly challenged, has she ever looked in command of her brief? Uh, you know, uh, I can I can recite half a dozen where she's been all over the mm. place, including on the question of is it okay for voters to change their minds? And she said no. And she was challenged by being told, "But you changed your mind on Brexit." Oh yeah, you know. Uh, so I suspect what she will do is get some of her civil servants to try to figure out how to get me out of this mess. But always knowing her get out of jail free card is to say it's all Boris's fault. I'm quitting. Let's bring him down and have me as leader. Well, this is the, the uh, what Marie was saying earlier in that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a kind of a base for her. Quite a lot of people are saying that, that it's actually the poison chalice, that Johnson's put her there to neutralise her, give her an absolute unsolvable mess to burn all of her political capital, and there's somebody else who can't challenge him. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I mean, we are dealing with the Medicis, but without their charm and without the Renaissance. Uh, (laughs) If, if, uh, you know, wouldn't it just be great if we had a kind of political system where we actually chose who the leader of the country was? I just think that would be quite good. It's never going to catch on. Uh, Here, let's talk about cheese and wine. Uh, Dominic Robb told ICV News it was uncharitable of people to criticise Johnson and his wife for having cheese and wine with Whitehall staff after a busy day uh, while the country was under a national uh, lockdown last year. How charitable are you feeling on the cheese and wine front? When I first looked at it, it sort of made me think about how you've had that thing where when you look back on a period of time, you remember the best thing and the worst thing and then the sort of average, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I felt as though enough time had passed uh, since May 2020 that I was really looking at it with the sense of someone looking at it now. And I'm like, yeah, we know that if you're outdoors and stuff, then it's it's not really a risk and everything. These people were working indoors anyway. And it took having to look back at what the rules were at yeah. that time to realize that, oh, my God, we were under extraordinarily like draconian shutdown at that stage. Um, that meant that even this thing, which realistically is it's not like a gigantic COVID risk or anything like that. Yeah, that we know now. Actually, yeah. That wasn't allowed. And so to be honest, it's 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 just the fact that it's once again the people making the rules, not abiding by them, that's the thing that uh, sticks in the craw. And like I'm sure you've seen various things on social media about people talking about not being able to attend funeral or having much smaller funerals and that sort of thing. And then this was going on. So yes, it, it's not something that I'm annoyed about because, oh, this was terrible from a public health perspective or anything like that. Um, but it's more another example of the one rule for that. What did you make of Johnson insisting that the problem wasn't what he had himself done, but it was that the papers are full of these stories and not the brilliant news about the boosters? And I was really reminded of Homer Simpson saying, I swear on my life, Marge, I never thought you'd find out. <laughs> well, yes, and I mean, sort of, we're, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon, and absolutely every newspaper in the country has a wraparound on it telling you to get boosted. Like, that is that is pretty prevalent. Like, it's not like anyone hasn't heard of the boosters. And it's just uh, sort of indicative 
of this guy. But it's been the case constantly, right? Like when he nicked that reporter's phone for trying to show him something or when he hid in the fridge. To, like it's churlish mm. to ask questions of him or to point out his failures or something. Like he 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 seems to feel as though like it's a genuine affront to receive any sort of not not even necessarily criticism, just statement of fact. Mm. It's one way of keeping the bad news off the front of the paper, though, isn't it? Just buy a big advert to put around the outside <laughs> of the paper, and then the front pages are all dealt with. Yeah. So, Marie, before we move on to uh, the actual year that we're supposed to be uh, reviewing, it has it has been a horror week, and we haven't even mentioned the North Shropshire by-election. Simon Case having to recuse himself from the party investigation because he went to a party as well. Um, you said earlier that you're not really kind of getting the, the, the sense that some kind of leadership challenge is, is immediate. Why don't you think it's likely? You know, yeah, the, the first thing is, I think, to be blunt, there's quite a lot of shit eating left to do on the pandemic. So, you know, either basically put in some more restrictions and then put yourself at odds with, you know, quite a lot of your own backbenches or do not do that and have to deal with the deaths, et cetera, that come with that. So I think, you know, why not keep the prime minister who is there right now um, to, to do that for, you know, however many months? Mm. Um, And then again, I think the second thing as well is that actually you probably have quite a lot of, you know, the kind of silent majority, I would say, of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, who's not especially enthused by either the vision, you know, the, the, the great grand vision of Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. And no one else has really announced themselves as someone who would want to run quite yet. So I think, you know, you, you would probably want, if you're one of those MPs, you would probably want other people to be that, you know, I don't know, like Tom Tugendhat, Penny Morden, whoever else, to maybe decide they want to run, get a team together and start making the calls, etc. And then once, I think, internally, it looks like there will be four, five, even maybe six, who knows, candidates actually ready to go with a campaign that is actually kind of ready to go, then I think that will happen. So if I were to personally bet, I'd probably put a leadership contest if things do not improve around you know because obviously we've got the local elections in may i don't think they were going they're going to go great for the conservatives so probably early june feels to me like quite a good sort of like time for knifing um <laughs> we'll make a note of it we'll put that in the diary it's knifing season <laughs> you, know, you know if it doesn't work for other people i can make a doodle that you know it's fine we can find another date yeah <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. There are still a few days left for 2021 to top itself for routine awfulness, but we're going to call it and look back on the year they're describing as exactly the same as 2020, but somehow even more dispiriting. Our panel have chosen their signature images of the year, a little ray of hope, the thing you'll remember 2021 for, and what to look out for next year. Let's start with that signature image of, of the year. Um, are here. what have you chosen? So my signature image of the year is the image of uh, Queen Elizabeth alone at Prince Philip's funeral. Uh, you know, the sort of piece all around her, empty and her in a mask, not having anyone around her. And it seemed like regardless of what your feelings about the monarchy are, this person who has uh, existed for such a span of mm. modern British history and so is invested with a lot a lot of that history just being pictured in this instance doing what actually quite a lot of people uh, were 
sadly made to do, I think is for this country going to be an image that uh, sticks with us uh, for a very long time. And particularly when you contrast what she was doing with what we now know was going on at Downing Street. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, you know, it was genuinely startling image, wasn't it? Because you, the Queen, whether you're a monarchist or not, does have this, you know, kind of constitutional role as a psychological role as embodiment of the nation. And you only ever see her surrounded by crowds and surrounded by adoring faces and surrounded by ceremony. And this was, the pandemic has just you know, stripped all that away. And she's just a, uh, you know, a, a grieving woman, um, you know, towards the end of her life, dressed in black, completely alone. And you'd exactly. have to be very hard-hearted not to feel sympathy for that. And I think that given, like, out of all human beings in history, she must have met more people or been seen in person by more people than almost anyone else who's ever existed, if if not she's the person mm. who's seen the most people and met the most people. And so, yes, to see someone like that so totally alone, I think, is yeah. uh, extremely striking. That's an interesting point, is it? Because her reign, it basically is the television age. Mm. You know, she kind of came to the crown at the beginning, so nobody has... You're right, No, certainly no monarch has ever been seen or televised as much simply because people couldn't beforehand. Yeah, like, well, the very, the very televisation of her coronation was a, was a big deal. Yeah. Marie, uh, what's, what was your image of uh, 2021? Well, so I think, you know, my image of the year was definitely Patsy Stevenson uh, being pinned down by the police uh, mm. at the Clapham Vigil for Sarah Everard. Um, I mean, for a number of reasons. The first one is a personal one, which is that actually, so I live in the neighbourhood and um, and which still feels insane to say, but actually, because um, you know, when the details came out about um, the, the killer kind of driving down trying to find a victim, I walked down at exactly the same time in the street parallel to that. Mm. Um, I'd been on a walk and literally, I mean, literally the timings matched exactly. So I... And and I remember you know, I I could have taken the road he drove on um trying to choose a victim that night. So that's something that very much stuck in my mind. But you know, but, but more broadly, I think it was just the kind of intense criminalization of protests. And that was, you know, and, and that was, as we know now, as we knew at the time, that was a protest that actually was COVID safe. It was people uh, socially distant, um, outdoors as well, just trying to honor a woman who'd been brutally, brutally murdered. And the fact the police came down so hard on these women, just trying to do something, trying to come together. Because I think it, it was really hard for me. It's really hard for me every woman I know. And I think that was so indicative of, yeah, of the policing of this year. And especially, you know, as, um, mirroring what Ahir was saying earlier as well. I think, especially in the context of what we know now, of kind of the police refusing to, I think, investigate quite a lot of other things that happen around the same time. Mm. Um, it, it just, I think, I've always remember it as, you know, yeah, again, as one of the, you know, great faults, I think, of 2021. Yeah, Patsy Stevenson, the, the woman who was arrested, she said a lot of women were angry at being told we couldn't mourn the death of a woman. And that it is, as, simply as a photograph, it is, it's electrifying. It's the you know the the um, the use of such over the top brutality against um, a lone woman at that time of all times. Well, I suppose one of the kind of things outside of that picture was the, the fact that the um, the demo was agitated by incomers, outsiders, and a lot of males. Um, and then then the police response comes down hard on um, women. Oh yeah, no, no, absolutely, and and again, it was not like we knew like we had a good good enough sense of the science at the time. We knew this was not a protest that was going to spread COVID in mm. any way. The amount of stupid, boneheaded kind of you know anti-vax, anti-lockdown, etc. protest that you know the police just let happen for some reason, maybe because it was men or people who looked a bit scarier than kind of just young women trying to grieve for one of their own. Mm. Um, it was just yeah, I mean beyond infuriating. So yeah, no, I think that for me at least yeah that that was 
that was very much the image of the year. It's been an absolutely shocking year for the Met. Cressida Dick is still in position. Very little is going to happen while this particular government is in charge. Do you think the seeds have been planted for for change eventually, that um, you know the, the institutional failings of the Met can be tackled without going down a full, you know, defund the police, uh, anti-policing route? I mean, I, I, I'm quite pessimistic, to be entirely honest with you, because, again, you know, that there was a time, I think, when that could have been done. At, least, at the very least, those conversations could have been happening at quite high levels, be that from Black Lives Matter, from the policing in the Sarawad, um vigil, from many other events. But the fact that that was shut down at every single level time and time and time again means, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not especially optimistic. M- maybe it's the case that once Cressida Dick decides to stand down, whenever that is, there will be a form of conversation over how the Met is acting, what is happening with especially, you know, the leadership of the Met. But, but yeah, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at a point where I have no hope, to be honest with you. Like, sorry to be a downer, but um, but there you go. Well, it's not been a happy year. Um, Gavin, your image was uh, the QAnon shaman, uh, Mad, yeah. Mad Jamiroquai in the American uh, Capitol building. What made you choose that one? Well, I mean, it has stayed with me, me this um, sort of buffalo-headed tattooed, more on moving in the U.S. capital, a building that I know quite well, and I spent a long time there, and surrounded by, for me anyway, the biggest bunch of Looney Tunes since the downfall of the Third Reich. I mean, they're running around try, with 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 ties to tie up politicians, and some of them are armed uh, in the heart of American democracy because the election has been stolen from Donald Trump. What can you? What more can you say? It is very, very. I mean it. It is a very, very serious event because uh, it has had repercussions and the difficulties that the Biden administration are in now suggest that they will get a severe kicking possibly by the end of 2022 in the midterm elections and that the Republican Party, which is falling still into line behind Donald Trump, is the representatives, uh, political representatives of some of these people, which is very bad for all of us in my view. It's been interesting to see how many of the people that have been convicted for the invasion of the capital um, have kind of pleaded the idea that they were somehow influenced uh, to act outside their usual character, that they were kind of, you know, sort of like short term radicalized. You know, we didn't we didn't want this. We just thought that we were standing up for democracy. Uh, The guy, Jake Chansley, the QAnon shaman, got a 41 month sentence. He's now trying to have the sentence voided and he's taken on uh, a lawyer who'd represented Kyle Rittenhouse. So, you know, whatever kind of um, spurious uh, regret is on show there is is slightly undermined by the fact that, you know, he's playing entirely to that, um, you know, far right opinion gallery. And when you take on somebody's defended Kyle Rittenhouse, you are making a statement, aren't you? You definitely are. And that's that's very interesting, too, because Kyle Rittenhouse, I mean, that was a very it's a very interesting case. Obviously, he's the guy who who shot some people at a Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration as a 17 year old. He crossed state lines with an Armalite, you know, a, an ER-15 rifle, which is a military issue weapon. And so a lot of the commentary in the United States was, uh, you know, why did he shoot them? Was he in fear of his life and so on and so on? To me, the, the madness is that it's somehow regarded as kind of okay for a 17-year-old to take a military weapon and cross state lines before shooting people with whatever motive. So there is something that has gone very, very seriously wrong in the United States. And there are a lot of people uh, speculating as to where this is going to go. They've got people in Georgia talking about secession uh, from the union. Well, we know how that went be- mm-hmm. before. I mean, these may be 
minorities, but they're very loud minorities who have some representation in the Republican Party. And that is quite scary. I think the image of the year for me was uh, Boris Johnson's ridiculous police cosplay stunt in Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, where he turned, he, he's wearing a police outfit where he, he goes beyond any parody of the fat sweaty coppers the fast Joe could ever come up with. He just looks absolutely absurd stuffed into this uniform. He has to get in and get out of Liverpool before 7am, before anybody even knows he's there, because to put it mildly, he's not very welcome there. And yet somehow seems to think that this is a great image to be putting across and a powerful one that will aid the message of Crime Week. Of course, Crime Week fell apart within a couple of days. Um, But it just seemed to underline that the kind of absolute banality and foolishness of this um, this kind of, you know, soundbite and photo shoot obsessed governments behind which there's no no substance at all i mean have we even heard further um exploration of the idea that these terrible perfidious middle-class cocaine users are going to be criminalized it just it's their first story for the day and then it evaporates how about a ray of hope gavin uh yours was uh, connected to your book tour for how britain ends yes it was i mean i was thinking you know the old joke when you were speaking there i was thinking you take crime off the streets keep it in downing street <laughs> and The thing is that the unrepresentative nature of some of our political culture really struck me when I talked up and down this country um, to people. Mm. Um, And so and we were talking about quite serious things about what, what makes us British, if anything, what keeps us together. Why should we fall apart, or why shouldn't we fall apart? Uh, what are the what are what are the problems with independence or Irish unit for Scotland and Irish unity and, and and so on? Do you know what? Most people are really quite reasonable. And most people can uh, can have differences of opinion without thinking that the person that they are discussing things with is an enemy. And I thought that was they may be they may be just be an opponent or just yeah. have different views. And I, I did think repeatedly, um, both in in mostly in the real life settings, but also in some that online. You know, if you've got a couple of hundred people together, the citizens' assembly idea is not such a bad idea because people uh, it actually worked quite well in the Irish Republic. Uh, on questions like uh, like abortion and gay rights, you you put people together, different views, but they kind of coalesce, mm-hmm. kind of in the middle. We don't do that, and so that 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 cheered me up. Uh, in other words, I think that um, that most of us, most of the time, want to get on with our neighbours, and whether we disagree with them or not. We, we would come to resolutions about important issues. There is a huge gulf between the kind of people who go into politics and the kind of people who end up filing into the voting booths. We seem to be a country of relatively sensible people who most of us, when asked to wear a mask or asked to change what we're doing in order for, for the common good to be served, will do it. But we're led by kind of wild extremists. Yeah, and we and you know we wear masks even when we're not asked to wear masks mm. sometimes, and, and it, it you know it, it is very interesting how as this government dithers yet again about what to do about COVID, people have voted with their feet. Fewer of us are going to the pubs uh, on the London Tube. More, many more people are wearing masks. So this, I, this is an anecdote, but I've I've seen it with my own eyes, and so I think people are people are sensible, and they would quite welcome a bit of leadership. And just to be told uh, we we can't quite make up our minds yet is not really working, at least to me anyway. Yeah, Marie, what's your uh, ray of hope? Yeah, I, I'm just going to be a big nerd here, and I think uh, just be a massive cheerleader for science. So obviously, you know, like vaccines uh, against COVID, the fact that you know how quickly they happen remains, I think, incredible even now at the end of 2021. But even more, you know, we've had so many more good news about vaccines. So you know, malaria, for example, mm-hmm. you know that you know 
proves, I think, now that actually we're going to be able to save potentially millions, if not tens of millions of lives of children, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, by developing a vaccine against malaria. That's brilliant. So breast cancer. So I think... um, Human trials, I believe, started uh, in November for uh, vaccines against breast cancer, which obviously kills, you know, countless and countless women mm. um, every single year. So, so yeah, no, I, was, yeah, I, I just, you know, which I know sounds that like, makes me sound like a, you know, like a bit of a child, really. But it just science is very good, and I think that <laughs> it, 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 it is just getting better. And yeah, vaccines are great. Just huge fan of vaccines and scientists working around the clock, kind of changing the world faster than anyone could think. Um, is a brilliant thing. Science is um, great so is yeah, a more con- a more controversial statement than you might think. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, but yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> so I, I wasn't aware that uh, most COVID vaccines are based on messenger RNA uh, technology, which has only been around for about 20 years. And apparently this uh, mRNA vaccine stuff is incredible. You can just easily and quickly modify it. You can do cheap gene fixes on anything from sickle cell disease, HIV. And this is just like, they, they just kind of pulled it out of the box and, and turned around a vaccine in a, a matter of months. So some more smash hits for, for science this year that I, I looked up. Obviously, we flew a helicopter on Mars for the first time. Very important. Martian Deliveroo, here we come. And uh, a company called Neuralink enabled a monkey to play Pong telepathically. Now, you might think that that's ridiculous, and the poor monkey has to have electrodes in its head. But this is an experiment to enable to, you know, to find ways that, uh, you know, people with locked-in syndrome or other uh, communication problems can communicate with the outside world. So we're basically inventing telepathy, which isn't bad going. No, exactly. I think, again, you know, most things are actually terrible right now. However, there are just some very clever people in lap codes somewhere just working to make life better for like for us and then for our kids and etc. Like th- things are just broadly getting better is the thing that I think has been helping me uh, throughout this year when at, at times when it did not really feel, let's be honest, that things were going to get better yeah. at, at any point. Things um, can only get yeah. better. She's She's gone Blair right on us. <laughs> Uh, yeah. What's your what's your ray of light to take the minds off the gloom? Well, my ray of light was that when things did open up, people did actually go and do things uh, once again. And we saw this mm. sort of throughout uh, 2020 as well. But through each period of locking down, there were infinite sort of pieces uh, speculating as to this is going to be the death of the city and no one's going to want to do anything anymore. Everyone's just going to want to do everything virtual um now and as someone who a has lived in a city his entire life and prefers that sort of thing uh no shade to anyone who doesn't and also someone whose principal job is contingent on being able to get crowds of people uh coming out and gathering just the fact that uh people were really enthusiastic for it uh again was really uplifting right and like it was a wonderful thing to walk around you know if if you walked around soho in the evenings and saw like all of the tables out in the streets when they pedestrianized it and everything they've rode back on that because westminster council are extraordinarily uh in hock to residents who are apparently unaware that living in soho would be in any way noisy um, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I just think that that's, uh, it was a really heartening thing to see that there was some spirit in which we really were aching to go out and do things again and experience cities again, particularly. And yeah, that was a, that was a lovely thing. And I hope that we will be able to do far more of that in 2022. I remember the first few gigs I went to after uh, after everything had opened up again. It was just incredible to be in a room where the music is loud, where the people look good and the music is loud. And it's like, gosh, look at them really playing their instruments and you know the very basics that I would have accepted. I would just have not even thought about years ago. Mm. Now seemed like miracles. 
oh, because it's, you've been deprived of it for such a long time. Yeah, and uh, hopefully, certainly, uh, as as a performer, it's something that uh, one takes a lot less for granted uh, than one perhaps yeah. used to because it was just sort of every day. Uh, and of course, yeah. we'd be able to do this sort of thing as well. And certainly, when I'm an audience member as well, that's the that's the way that I feel too. Well, my ray of light, uh, obviously, COP26 was very much a partial success. It didn't quite hit all the spots it was supposed to. But behind the politics, the direction on climate change is clear and it is quite encouraging and it's driven by business and technology. The cost of solar power declined 90% between 2009 and 2021. Onshore wind power declined by 70%. We're just making all these inroads on multiple fronts. Producing electricity from hydrogen is still more expensive than fossil fuels. But if you get into a similar decline in cost of wind and solar, it becomes you know, massively viable, and it's looking like it's going to happen. Um, there are a whole load of other reasons to be optimistic on the climate change front. Environmental lawsuits uh, are working. You know, basically, members of the public were able to force the government and NGOs to for, able to force the government to abide by these more serious targets. In the Netherlands, Royal Dutch Shell was ordered to cut its emissions by forty-five percent by court. Many, many encouraging things are happening. One of them is that uh, the company called QuantumScape have a new lithium metal battery that can boost the range of an electric vehicle by 80%. And it, it's a rapid recharge battery, and it's going to start turning up in Volkswagens in 2025. So bit by bit, outside of the negotiations, things are actually happening, and it's all being driven by demand and by business. So it's not all dreadful. Uh, on the subject of COP26, uh, we had the presidency, and they were all saying, oh, Alux, his nickname is No Drama Sharma. And it really annoys me because that's not how that name is pronounced. And so in my head, every time I've been correcting it to no drama Sharma, uh, which is always very good. Fun. Yes. Yeah. Vaguely Scottish sounding there right here. I like yeah, it. Yeah. What about the things that you'll remember 2021 for? The things that you did, the things that you saw, those indelible moments burnt into the mind that one day are going to give you a Proustian rush. Um, I hear you got in early and you chose Matt Hancock's affair and subsequent resignation. Mm. What made this so especially horrible and stand out for you? Was it just context? Well, I, I, I think I find that point in time fascinating because unlike sort of any of the other stuff, like unlike Barnard Castle uh, in 2020 or whatever, um, this was because it was coming around the time that everything was opening up anyway. It was just this fascinating point where over the course of 24 hours, you could feel a substantial percentage of the country just inwardly saying, ah, fuck it. Right. And uh, we're just going <laughs> to yeah. do uh, whatever now. And that was a really remarkable thing to me. Like, obviously, because with something like the vaccine rollout and everything, that's comparatively, it's going quickly, but it's comparatively slow and it takes a while to work and you'll feel more comfortable in your own time as time goes on and everything. But there was this real sense that that day just a, a national mood sort of turned on a sixpence. And I've not really experienced anything like that before. Do you think Hancock's got reason to feel aggrieved, given that, you know, Johnson, then his boss, is a known serial shagger who's already gotten away with it over and over and over again? And Matt Hancock is a bit of wandering party hands in the Department of Health, and that's the end of his career. I do think that uh, it's been an underexplored element of this, that uh, sort of CCTV footage from inside a minister's office was leaked mm. to the political editor of a, new, a tabloid newspaper, and that political editor is the former partner of the wife of the current prime minister and all of that. And that all seems a bit weirder than... Uh, Inverted yeah. commas, breaking social distancing rules. Yeah, and nobody even really seemed to bother to try and find out. It's just like the, the pictures appeared. 
We don't really know where. It doesn't really matter, does it? What, somebody had access to CCTV inside a government building. <laughs> Do you think it's a form of Eaton power play, you know, that Matt, Matt gets punished for something that Boris gets, gets away with all the time because Hancock went to King's School in Chester and it's not quite the ticket? Is King's School in Chester sounds fancy, though. It's fancy by normal people's standards, but it's not eaten, darling. <laughs> right, okay. Well, uh, neither a uh, neither Preston Manor High School in Wembley, so God knows that uh, I wouldn't have been able to do anything like that. that that's all right. We're, we're as bad as each other out here. <laughs> uh, my, uh, my thing that I'll remember 2021 for is, is, is just having to pause all the time on my way to anything to peel anti-vax stickers off lampposts. The increasingly moronic anti-vax stickers. I saw one last week that was a, a swastika made out of hypodermics. Because that's a reasonable point to make, isn't it? That's reasonable, you know, injecting people to, uh, you know, to stave off a pandemic and Nazi Germany. Same uh, thing, actually, really, when you Andrew, think about it. what you need to, re- that's actually an ancient Hindu symbol and we worship. Oh, for don't instance. even. So, yeah, all right. Okay. It's like, that's actually quite insensitive to my culture that you would. I'm sorry for being, I'm, I'm so, I'm sorry for being insensitive that's both what... to you uh, here and to Nazis. Why, why do you think, <laughs> Andrew, why do you think you've got so many Hindu doctors? <laughs> We're going to a very dark place so i'm gonna move over to ask marie about about what she will remember 2021 for no so this is quite funny i literally spent yesterday i went for a walk around my neighborhood and accidentally ended up spending it just removing anti-vax it's great uh, isn't it you feel like you're doing a public service and i've struck up conversations with people at lamppost going oh you do this as well it's great isn't it yeah i hate them they're all morons aren't they it's lovely community <laughs> moments no, it is, but it's also so I've got I've got quite long natural nails. Um and I feel like they've just finally found their natural purpose, which is just like peeling off stickers. And I'm like, all this time I'd been like carefully manicuring my nails and now I know why I've been doing it. Um, <laughs> um but so I, I think that my twenty one I, I would say I think it's probably the year when, you know, crack started to finally show in the kind of Boris Johnson leadership because you know, Boris Johnson as London mayor, Boris Johnson as foreign secretary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, as kind of a leadership contender and then finally prime minister. It was always, you know, Boris Johnson, the unstoppable force. I think that that, that was the main narrative. And, yeah. um, and perhaps ironically, that's kind of what kept him going. I think, you know, that nearly the kind of like promise of future power was what gave him power ultimately. It, it does feel quite significant that, you know, finally we've got to a point of saying actually, you know, Boris Johnson as a person is not infallible and actually he just does not get to brush off absolutely everything. He manages to brush off most things in a way that most people can't. But 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 even for him there's a limit, um, which felt quite significant. Gavin, how will you remember twenty twenty one? Uh, well, it was it was a personal moment of revelation, really, when I was frustrated trying to get petrol for my car, mm. as many of us were, and I tried a few garages, and I had to go quite a long way to get get some, and I realised I was letting my family down, I was letting my children down, not able to to do some of the things that I wanted to do with them, and I suddenly thought, what would I feel like if the same were true about food? Because it is true about food for a lot of people. Mm. What if I had to go to a food bank? And I re- I checked that. You know, we didn't talk about food banks till 2004 and then two set up in, in Salisbury. And now there's 2,200 of them in this country. And there's only 1,300 McDonald's. And this is supposed to be the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. And I thought, you know, I felt terrible on those two weeks when it was difficult to get petrol. And there are now, for some reason, so many more of our fellow citizens who try the best for their family and their kids in particular and can't feed them. And there is something wrong Mm -hmm. now that that really really struck me this year um because we're every one of us on this program is reasonably well off and we don't have to do this 
but so many people do. It's the alarming kind of normalization of it as well. The the idea that food banks are like just part of the landscape. They are like a McDonald's, and it's you know it, it's been sort of tacitly accepted in a way that you know in 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 two thousand you would have been horrified at the idea that they exist, and now it's kind of a feature of everyday life. Yeah, and I was actually I was uh, coming out of a tube station in North London, and uh, I saw that there was a food kitchen there at six o'clock at night, and it said we're a non-judgmental food kitchen, and they were giving some food to mm. to people. And again, you know, that is not something that I thought I would see in what is supposed to be the richest city and one of the richest nations in the world. Uh, we we really should at some point think why that has happened. What on earth is going wrong? And it, whatever it is, it can't be called levelling up. Finally, what should we watch out for in 2022? What are the big stories that, uh, that uh, are going to be shaping the world? Marie? I bet you'll be surprised to hear that I'm going to go for the French presidential elections. Uh-huh. Uh, we are about to elect a new president and it's uh, currently a, a, a bin on fire, but Frenchly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, we know that Emmanuel Macron will make it to the second round. Then who else will join him is, is I think, the big question at the moment. So is it going to be Valérie Pécresse, who is the, you know, kind of, you know, your bog standard sort of, you know, like right-wing uh, uh, politician? Is it going to be far-right Marine Le Pen? Is it going to be far-right Éric Zemmour? Who knows? But, yes, no, it's, it's not. And it's not a great time for anyone who's in any way left of centre, but, you know. It feels like France has been on the verge of electing a fascist all my adult life. Is Zemmour going to get there, do you think? Uh, I don't believe he will. No, he, he's tanked in the polls, actually, over the Hooray. past few weeks, which is uh, which is nice. Yeah, we like that. Which yeah, it, It's rare for me to be able to report good news from the fatherland. Uh, but yeah, there we go. We, do we like may that. not have the far right uh, in, in in our second round, which, you know, the, the bar is low, but we'll take what we can. Excellent. Viva France. Gavin, how about you? I think 2022 will be the year we will see the continuation of the diminution of British influence abroad. Uh, it's already we're already diminished in in Europe. We, you know, uh, uh, the Prime Minister talks about uh, watching Mr. Putin and his troops on the Russian border. He, we're cutting back at the British Army to 75,000 or so people, which is the lowest level since 1715, the War of the Spanish Succession. We have diminished ourselves in the eye, in the eyes of the Biden administration, and unfortunately, I think that will continue. Uh, mine, my, what I'm terrified is Hogo. You know the hassle of going out and the consequences mm-hmm. of what it will mean for cities. What uh, I hear was just saying about how wonderful it was when people came out to go to stuff and to support their local venue, pub, restaurant, cafe, bar, whatever. Um, the, the repeated lockdowns have acculturated us to the idea that you know you can stay in all the time and advising people not to go out but not providing furlough to support these businesses that suffer. I actually, I am actually quite worried that in 2022, we'll just get used to the idea that you just don't go out and those businesses don't get the support. That fills me with fear. But uh, here, you're going to finish with something to watch out for that might cheer us up. Yes, uh, I do not believe that this time next year, Boris Johnson will still be the Prime Minister. Uh, And I think that that will be a very good thing and cannot wait for that day uh, to come. It cannot come soon enough. Wait till it's Liz Truss and we'll see what you think about (laughs) it. Oh, boy. Yeah, you always forget that they just replace them with another one. Oh, no. I know. Like like the teeth of sharks, but every every tooth is a more horrible, manky, (laughs) embarrassing one. So that's the end of the podcast and the end of 2021 on the Bunker panel. Ordinarily, it means escape routes where we talk about the books, films, music, etc. that help us clear our brain in the preceding week. As it's the last show of the year, we thought we'd choose escape routes for the year, uh, the stuff that we loved best over the course of the whole year. Marie, what did you like? 
Um, I really enjoyed Dune, mm. the movie, but especially, I think, going to see Dune at the cinema. Um, you know, obviously for the obvious reason that, you know, I did not go uh, get to go to the cinema for a very long time, but but also because it was, both because it was a movie that was clearly made for a big screen and, you know, in big sounds, etc. But also it was, and I say that with love, you know, I, I, I love Marvel movies. I've watched every single one of them, but... Also, as a sci-fi nerd, I like that it was a sci-fi movie that took itself entirely seriously. Like, there is not one joke in Dune. It's a movie that's beautiful and that's just very serious about what it is. And actually, I think that we'd kind of be mm. missing properly sort of like big, massive scale, beautiful, really well-planned science fiction movies that just, yeah, that, that you know, that are just serious effectively. So, yeah, Dune was brilliant. It was so good. I went to see it twice. Yeah. Quite, quite right, too. I think it's my favourite film of the year as well. Uh, here, how about you? What was, what was, what this, what was your, your key cultural moment? Well, uh, I loved the return of live comedy, both being able to do it and be able to go to it and watch it. And my particular highlight was the fact that I was supposed to film uh, my special for HBO on the 31st of March 2020, which did not happen, as you can imagine, and mm -hmm. did in the end happen on the 6th of June 2021. And that was the moment this year where I felt like, ah, we might actually be back and doing something and fingers crossed we don't get too heavily omicron and that can remain the case going forward <laughs> did you update the material or did you just do all the old stuff you know what about those fidget spinners and things like that uh usefully that show was all about uncertainty and uh when, <laughs> when a show about uncertainty has been delayed for 14 months based on a global yeah. pandemic uh it tends to weirdly get more relevant excellent gavin how about you well, uh, my highlight, cultural highlight, was something uh, that my wife and a number of other, she's a musician, and a number of other people did for Dover Arts Development, uh, which was uh, at the Citadel, which is one of those fantastic Napoleonic forts that are around the Dover area. It became a holding center. It's a bit like a prison. And they did music and dance, and uh, there were lots of discussions about asylum seekers and, and also about racism and so on. And it was really, really moving, uh, it, particularly because this is a big old wrecked building, and I think it's about a 30-acre site. And maybe that could be transformed into something even better in 2022. Well, mine, I mean, I'm going to echo Marie, but also go a little bit against it. I mean, it's literally escapism. Nothing more escapist for an escape route than this. But what the Marvel Cinematic Universe did this year, one division, low the new Spider-Man, which I went to see last night, it just shows you that that you know this is not trivial um, throwaway stuff. There's just so much thought and love that goes into it, and I particularly enjoyed watching uh, the new Spider-Man in a room full of people who don't really have my level of knowledge about you know embarrassing nerdery about who's who, and they loved it too. And it just it, it just proved that you know what we've learned over the past couple of years is there is really nothing more important than those trivial moments of being able to free yourself and just wander into a different uh, mental space and a, and a different narrative space because you know the way the real world is is hard to handle but when you're when you've gone for a wander in a place like the marvel cinematic universe it's a little bit easier to handle and that is the end of 2021 on the bunker we've got one more daily tomorrow and then we're back in the first week of 2022 with more stuff until then thank you to ahir show happy christmas Happy Christmas. Tour tickets still available at ahearshow.com. You're goddamn right they are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Marie Leconte. Bonwell. Joyeux Noël.
Honourable Misfits, A Brief History of Britain's Weirdest, Unluckiest and Most Outrageous MPs is in all good bookshops right now and it's time enough to get it for Christmas. And thanks to Gavin Esler. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Give your favourite relative how Britain ends. It will keep them quiet over the festive period. And thanks to you for listening. Special thanks to our Patreon backers as well. Why not spend your Christmas money on joining the happy throng? You'll get the podcast early, plus amazing merchandise and your name read out on the podcast like this. Hello, and many thanks to Margaret Freeman-Stubley, Rosie Callahan, and Stephen Kavanagh. Thanks from me to Tim Fletcher, Stuart Hamlin, and Ramshackle78. Festive greetings, and thanks from me to Sally Gilson, Mark Gelbert, and Hal Wilson. And from me, it's hello and happy Winterville to Mark Garrett, Anna Magdalena Cavalin, and Frixos Kimonis. Have a lovely break, wherever it is, and we'll see you in the new year. Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. The producer was Andrew Harrison. An audio production came from me, Robin Lieber. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.